Thank you for joining me on this episode of Hardly Working. This is part two of the recording of an event on our recently released volume on non-cognitive skills, Minding Our Workforce, the Importance of Non-Cognitive Skills in Employment. I encourage you to listen to part one, where we heard from Albert Chang and Diane Schanzenbach. You can also find the non-cognitive volume on the AEI website. Today's segment features the work of Harry Holzer, a professor of public policy at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy and one of the nation's foremost labor economists who will discuss what the empirical data tells us about the value of non-cognitive skills, as well as his thoughts on the need for additional research on the topic. We will also hear from Beth Babcock, president of Empath, a Boston-based nonprofit working with low-income families to improve executive functioning skills, a core aspect of non-cognitive skills in life and work, and on how trauma-informed approaches are essential for assisting disadvantaged individuals to chart new, more hopeful futures. I hope you enjoy the discussion. We're going to hear next from Harry Holzer, uh, who uh, has uh, done a wonderful chapter for us on what the evidence, the evaluation evidence actually tells us about what works, how it works. um, And um, and, and as he says here, what do we really know? You know, this is the, the 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 question du jour: is how do we nail this thing down enough so that we can make some educated policy decisions about them? So I'm going to turn this over to Harry and uh, and have him tell you what he knows. Well, well, thank you, Brett. Uh, Brent, and it's it's uh, very nice to be here. Um, I'll say at the outset, I've done much less work on this topic than others on the panel. Uh, so it's really, in some sense, the views of an outsider. Much of what I know f- about this came from actually a paper that Diane and a co-author wrote uh, a few years ago. Uh, so that sort of means I should probably defer to Diane and others uh, if I have any areas of disagreement. Uh, but I'll tell you at the outset that deferring to others is not my strongest non-cognitive skill. So maybe I'll do that. Maybe I won't. I, I mean, I'll just say uh, I overlap a lot with Diane, uh, but I'll, you'll see my presentation, I come to a slightly more skeptical place, uh, slightly more uncertain. It's not that I think the evidence goes in a different direction. It's just that I don't think we have enough or it's not good enough to be really certain about what to do and, and to make firm policies. So I, I start with four questions and forgive the allusion to the Jewish holiday on that. Um, but the four questions are, how do we define and measure non-cognitive skills, which everyone has already talked about? Uh, number two, what evidence do we really have that they affect education and employment outcomes? Number three, what evidence do we have that we can really improve them? Uh, programmatically and policy-wise. And number four, uh, what, what, then what are the implications of all this for policy? And, and it'll be a natural thing to compare whatever we know about non-cognitive skills to cognitive skills. Um, and, and I make the argument, number one, we know a lot more about cognitive. It's been very heavily studied uh, in the last 20 years or so. And, and of course, non-cognitive is, is much more complicated, much more varied uh, than cognitive. And that, and that makes it even harder to know more. So let me start again with the, with the definition and, and measurement question. And again, everybody has is, is pointed this out. Uh, if you look at my second bullet point, these are some of the ways uh, in, in which non-cognitive skills are measured in this literature. Some people define it as social skills, especially social skills on the job. Some people define it as self-control. Uh, and the ability to defer gratification. Some people talk about it as being self-directed. Can people choose how to how to work 
independently without being told and managed very closely. Uh, some people talk about it as being related to mo motivation and resilience, what a lot of people now call grit. And there's others. Right. So, so if you look at this category, this, these are very different concepts uh, uh, and, and likely have different impacts, both on education and employment. So it's, it's hard, I think, to to come to the simple conclusion that that the returns to all of these, the returns to all these are probably very different, uh, both in education and employment, although likely they all matter to some extent. Some of them are attitudes. Some of them are closer to behaviors based on attitudes. Uh, sometimes they're measured with psychological tests. Sometimes with self reports on surveys, like did you participate in high school uh, um, activities? And some of them are based on, on teacher observations or other forms of observations. And, and both the method with which these things are measured and exactly what we're measuring sometimes have a big impact on, on the outcomes we see in the literature. And I worry that a lot of these non cognitive skills really overlap heavily or highly correlated with, actually negatively correlated with several of these other characteristics uh, that I list here, like participation in crime and incarceration or substance dependency or having ADHD or executive functioning difficulties or, or PTSD. And those are all quite different things. And, and, and we know all these things have very strong, usually negative impacts on the labor market. But, but how much of what we're measuring are, are, are these things, you know, rather than some of the, the non-cognitive skills themselves? And these things are not, it's very hard to disentangle all this stuff with, with the usual data we have. So just some of the things to keep in mind. I think the bottom line in terms of their impact on education and employment, I'll, I'll here I'll, I'll agree with Diane, they, they certainly matter. And the extent to which they matter is rising over time. I think that's likely true as you, as you transition from an industrial economy to a service economy into a knowledge-based economy. It, it, it makes sense that, that they matter more. But boy, you look carefully at the studies. Uh, um, number one, the extent to which you really can believe that what's measured is a true causal impact. A lot of things are not controlled for, you know, a lot of the usual suspects uh, in, in a lot of this literature, questions are raised out almost all these studies. And then even if you believe the study, the magnitudes of the impacts are kind of all over the map. And, and as I said, a lot of the studies have weaknesses that they are suggestive, strongly suggestive, but not necessarily, don't necessarily prove uh, in, in many cases. Well, then we get to the question of, well, okay, if we think they are important, we're still not sure how much, you know, can, can we improve them with practices and interventions? So again, here, here I, I, I learned from Diane in, in a previous paper she wrote, and I, I put down three of the things she mentioned in that paper, uh, teacher value added and sort of the measures of teacher competence in these areas, pre-K programs and meta analyses of all the different measures and different kinds of non-cognitive skills. And out of the three areas, you know, I think I think the teacher value added evidence I've seen is the strongest. There's a, a, a guy, I think a colleague of Diane's named uh, Kirbo Jackson that has a very, very good paper showing that there are systematically teachers that are better at, at teaching these skills than others. Um, and, and that has an impact on, on what happens with the students. I'm, I'm less convinced by the pre-K uh, literature, and, and we can talk about that afterwards. I'm less convinced by the meta-analyses. You know, meta-analysis is only a good, as good as, as the underlying program, uh, underlying studies that they're summarizing. Um, so I have questions about all that. On the other hand, when I look at the literature on teens and young adults, I actually see some positive stuff going on there uh, beyond what Diane mentioned. And uh, I'll mention the first one, summer youth employment programs, which for a long time, I thought was just sort of a boondoggle. Um, 
there's stronger and stronger evidence based on rigorous studies, lottery studies where the causal effect is carefully measured, that these have important impacts, not necessarily on, on, on employment afterwards, but on keeping kids out of, pro, out of crime, out of incarceration, et cetera. And, and I've seen this now in enough studies of, uh, of programs with some scale that, I'm, that I believe in. Uh, so that's an important plus. There are smaller programs. Uh, in Chicago, there's a program called Becoming a Man that has been rigorously tested that has quite large effects teaching young adolescents and teenagers how to stay out of trouble, how, how to not immediately trip into to a violent response in, in different situations. Of course, Job Corps, Youth Build, some of the other things Diane mentioned. So, so I am I'm actually heartened that in this area, we do know some things uh, that seem to work. Um, I am a lot less optimistic so far on what we know about programs for hard to serve adults, but there's a lot of promising things there. I think there's nothing that's really clearly proven, but there are promising programs. And I think, I think Beth Babcock will talk about some of those right after I speak. So in all of these cases, this is the question that policymakers ask themselves or, or the, that we tell policymakers to ask. Uh, do we know enough about what is cost effective at scale? to implement these these policies. And, and I'm going to argue that in most cases, we, we probably don't. Implications for policy, you know, and, and again, it's this funny mixture. We, we know some things, but but we don't know some things. So, so for instance, on, on that issue of, of teachers and teacher value added, we know that some teachers are really good at this and that, and they're good at transmitting those skills to students, but we don't really know how to generate more of the teachers that are good at this. And, and that's also true, by the way, on, in terms of cognitive skills. Sometimes we have the knowledge of what to do and we could scale it, but do we have the political will to implement it and most importantly to fund it? And, 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 and would it be cost effective if we fund it? So if you think about all this stuff and you break it down into, into the three groups of people, sort of pre-K through 12, uh, teens and young adults and hard to serve adults. I, I'd say the following about each of those groups. In, in pre-K through 12, I'm not convinced that we really have identified cost-effective solutions at scale, but there's a lot of experimentation going on, especially at the state level, experimentation and evaluation. And I think that's a really good thing. I, mean, I think we should be willing to invest a lot in that experimentation and evaluation and, and, and to learn more. And that maybe five, 10 years down the road, we would have more confidence in what to do about this. Uh, about teens and young adults, I'm, I am more, more bullish on this. As I sort of said, I think we should expand the summer youth employment programs right now and really scale them up dramatically while we continue to investigate programs like Becoming a Man and, and maybe even scale up things, things like Job Corps and Youth Build. And finally, on the hard to serve adults, let's invest more in, in the kinds of programs that Beth is going to talk about in a few minutes and carefully evaluate them and see where we are. So bottom line, we know this broad range of things that we call non-cognitive skills. And again, they are often very different from each other. They are clearly too important to ignore. Uh, they clearly matter, but we, I think we need to know more before we invest heavily in, in, in creating more of them. Let's invest right now in further building of the knowledge base so that maybe a little bit down the road, we can make really sensible policy investments uh, in, in this area. Uh, and and I, th I think I think those policies will pay off once we know a little more. Perry, thanks so much. Um, as always, um, uh, insightful, uh, helpful, and um, sobering uh, to take a hard look at what we actually know or don't know um, in this in this subject matter area. Um, 
and I've got, I, I also want to get us back to the, the early childhood stuff. And I want, I want us to have a dialogue about that because I think that that is one of the areas where it, it does need more attention. And I know you've thought about that a lot. <clears throat> but before we do that, I've got one more presentation from Beth Babcock, who is uh, the president and CEO of Empath, um, which is, stands for Even Economic Mobility Pathways. Um, I have been following Beth's work um, on this project for years, um, maybe a decade or more, um, in terms of watching what Empath is doing. Um, because they're doing some, I think, of the most difficult work that there is to do in this field of trying to support adults um, uh, in the acquisition of a set of skills that really pertain to sort of establishing aspirations for life, building plans to reach those goals and coaching people through that process. So it's, it's a remarkable project. Uh, and, um, and, and I'm looking forward. I've, the chapter is great. Uh, we've got a couple other chapters in the same kind of domain area, but um, it's really important for people to hear about Empath's work. So Beth, walk us through uh, your organization and uh, the, the mobility pathways. Thank you. Thank you much, uh, Brendan. It's good to be with everyone today. Um, I head up an organization that has been trying since 2006 to partner with academic institutions, researchers, uh, to basically understand as much as we can about how poverty, trauma, and stress impacts uh, non-cognitive skills and how we can take what we is known about that um, based on this kind of academic research research to build and strengthen on the ground programs that help to coach low income individuals to move out of poverty and to get better careers and better, better earnings. Um, so we, as I said, have been doing this work since, uh, well, basically since 2006. And we look at this as a process of helping people gain the skills that we're broadly calling non-cognitive skills, but we as an organization refer to as executive functioning skills and self-regulation skills. And these are skills that basically are the skills that individuals need to plan, uh, to set goals and plan, uh, to be able to think strategically and uh, opt for a plan B when a plan A isn't working, um, and also to be able to have the kind of uh, self-regulatory -reg and interpersonal skills that allow them to be able to, uh, not only when they plan, be able to build the resilience and uh, maintain a process toward achieving the goals that they, they want to achieve. And one of the things I'm going to add to the discussion is we know that the stresses of poverty, trauma, and oppression impact executive functioning and self-regulation skills. They impact non-cognitive skills and they impact them negatively. 
And this is something that is proven through very, very rigorous pure scientific research, brain scans of the brain areas that control these functions that basically show that when individuals are under stress, uh, they are, uh, we're all impacted in the way we're able to use our strategic thinking and the way that we're able to uh, control our self-regulation and, um, and persist and, and exhibit resilience. And so for those of us who are working to try to help low-income individuals uh, improve their skills, improve their market worth, get better jobs, um, take care of their families, keep body and soul together, manage money, um, manage health issues uh, together, which is what it takes to move out of poverty. It's not just one thing. It's all those things. Um, you have to really have these skills on steroids in, in order to be able to juggle what a human being has to juggle to be able to move out of poverty and, and actually sustainably uh, achieve economic independence. So for us at Empath, what we've been doing for years now, as I said, since 2006, is trying to incorporate what we learn from the behavioral and from the pure sciences about how poverty impacts these uh, human skills, these non-cognitive skills, um, both so that we can create tools and programs and train staff in a way that is sensitive to these challenges, but also so that we can do the work that we want to do which is to help uh, people enter into and graduate from training programs, get better jobs and take care of their families uh, at the same time uh, and to develop in addition to those pathways and achieve those pathways to develop the non-cognitive skills that are necessary for them to not only achieve those goals, but also to continue to achieve the kind of growth in their earnings that um, and their skills that is so critical in the workforce of today and that Diane was talking about earlier that you see is critical to a sustainable uh, economic mobility pathway. So at the core of the work that we do is a framework we call the Bridge to Self-Sufficiency, which is an executive functioning and self-regulation framework. You're not seeing the full framework here, but basically it says that there is a complex process of having to optimize life in your family stability, your health and well-being, your financial management and your education and training, and also in your career development, that all these areas of life really have to be uh, optimized in order for a person to be able to sustain a pathway out of poverty and to attain economic independence. And um, individuals have strengths and weaknesses and challenges in all of those areas that differ. Every person is different. And um, but what we know in general is that if an individual has serious challenges in, in any one or more of those areas, that's going to be very, very difficult for them to be able to sustain a pathway out of poverty. But juggling how you set goals and how you uh, uh, invest your time and your energy and your motivation uh, in any of those areas to optimize your goals is, is a complex process, knowing if you have a kid who has asthma um, and you have limited education and a lot of debts and you're living in a homeless shelter, knowing whether or not you should be working on your housing or your money management or your kid's health or your training or you know, trying to get into the workforce and which steps you take 
where, when, and how is a complex process that requires both optimal uh, strategic thinking skills, but also optimal self-regulatory skills. And so the core of our work is to try to help individuals um, practice because these are these are functions or skills that are gained through practice. You know, there's a lot of difference in what these skills may be, but where there really is commonality is in the fact that this is not something that you're taught by having someone like me gas back at you. These are things that human beings uh, acquire through practice. Practice of planning, practice of analyzing uh, your issues, um, practice of teasing apart complex problems and thinking about where and how you want to start on them, practice in recuperating and having resilience after something hasn't worked and knowing that you can uh, persist to a different plan or a plan B um, and ultimately get to the goals that you're trying to achieve. So what we've been building for over a decade and using for over a decade now are tools that human service organizations across the country um, are using. Uh, we're actually serving tens of thousands of people with these tools now in over 140 organizations and uh, government entities. Um, what we what we give are tools for human service, uh, health, education institutions to use to help uh, uh, individuals to be coached, to actually do their own problem solving and goal setting, and to actually over time to practice uh, setting goals, achieving goals, and ultimately doing so in a way that helps them to move out of poverty. And what we can say is that in general, literature on goal setting and goal achievement shows that even among the best of us, you know, when we try to stop smoking, or we try to save money, or we try to uh, go to school and complete a course or a training program, program at school, the completion rates for uh, these things that we struggle to do, even among the best of us, have a tendency to be maybe one in four or one of five of these attempts is actually going to succeed on the first time. So uh, in, in general, you can think back on your own sort of New Year's Eve goal <laughs> setting that you do and think about how many of those things you attained. And you'll know what I'm talking about, that the literature sort of bears out uh, these kind of low overall completion rates for goals that we set for ourselves. And yet for us working and our partners working with very low income um, families who are uh, uh, multiracial families, oftentimes in extreme circumstances such as homelessness, that our overall successful goals completion rates are doubling and tripling and even in some cases quadrupling the normal successful completion rates that you see with individuals who are trying to improve set goals that would improve their family stability like moving out of shelter, are trying to complete uh, drug treatment programs under health and well-being, maybe trying to save money and reduce debts under financial management, uh, trying to complete coursework or training programs under education and training, and trying to get promoted in a career and get a job that pays more and, and offers more opportunity. So you can see here the kind of completion rates that we're getting and have been getting now for more than a decade, um, and our partners are also achieving, uh, are pretty startling, and um, our, our outcomes that are leading to incomes that are uh, family-sustaining incomes and, and and education completion rates that are really quite unusual. 
Now, we have a network of partner organizations that are using um, our tools and approaches. And this network, as I said, is now um, numbering over 140 organizations like the City of New York Child and Family Services, the State of Washington Early Learning and Care Department, um, uh, nonprofits that are homeless shelters in Detroit like COTS, um, uh, healthcare institutions like Mass General. These are, these are institutions that are all picking up and using this new way of working, this way that is, is building out of what we know about executive functioning and self-regulation and increasingly what we know about uh, how it impacts individuals, especially in poverty or um, who are uh, have trauma or are in a racially oppressed group. Um, and uh, what we know about how to design tools and processes to both uh, capitalize on the coaching process in a way that, that is sensitive to those challenges, but also then transmits the new skills as part of the outcome that you're trying to achieve. And what we have now is we have, uh, we don't have, uh, we don't, the RCT data on this work, which is very, very new work, as you can imagine, is still very limited. There's a Padua study that was done um, in Texas of this kind of approach. And there are a couple more RCTs that are going on right now um, uh, that, sh that are providing more rigorous kind of data on the impacts. But what we're seeing now is pre and post data that is of the kind that I just showed you on the slide, which we now have for tens over 10 years uh, with ourselves and other institutions. And we, um, we are also beginning to see, again, very nascent literature. And we have a paper coming out in pediatrics in the Journal of Pediatrics uh, this fall that shows um, in the case of Washington State, the parents who were coached um, in home visiting programs with these kind of models um, in Washington State had measurable impacted outcomes for um, their children in executive functioning and self-regulation testing, the TS Gold tests, for the children of parents who were coached in comparison to uh, the children of parents who were not coached under these new frameworks and models of mobility mentoring. So this is a new world. Um, what we know about the importance of uh, self-regulatory and um, executive functioning or non-cognitive skills, what we know about about these as as you heard from Harry is is very much still emerging even the definitions around it and how you measure these things is still emerging but it is as Harry and the other uh, speakers before me have said very promising and it suggests that um, we're of the importance of trying to expand more how we incorporate this new knowledge into the work of economic mobility and coaching and how we um, and how we study and how much we study uh, the the programs that are trying to do so for both adults and children. So I'll stop there and uh, happy to answer more questions. So uh, welcome back, everybody. Um, uh, uh, Beth, thank you so much for um, the presentation and the overview into um, your work, work of empath and uh, uh extremely helpful and I do have I do have questions for you um, and so I, I'd like to start though um, with a little bit of discussion among all of us um, so I think that everybody um, mentioned uh, this problem including me but this problem of uh, language and definitions and uh, and so on for the future to get to the future that we've all been talking about, which is a better 
conceptualized, better measured, better uh, understood, um, uh, uh, better understanding of the importance of these skills and how they get taught. And uh, so I'm curious, um, you know, when I when I and I suppose many of you have had this experience, but when you start talking to particularly policymakers, sometimes employers, uh, people, other researchers, uh, and, you, and you start talking about this subject and there's this, I, it's pretty consistent of, yep, that is so important. And then that's usually followed by a shrug uh, of, which I interpret as a kind of despair, um, you know, like we, we just don't know what to do. So I guess my first question is, um, how, do, how do we go about talking about this issue um, uh, in a way that is empowering to, uh, at, at all levels, not just for the people that Beth is working with, um, but for our researchers, our policymakers, our state legislators, our federal, how do we talk about it in a way that communicates um, uh, you know, something other than than despair and actually gives people something to work on? So I just want to throw that out there and see if anybody uh, has given that uh, question any thought. Um, so feel free to speak right up. Well, I'll dive in about the anti-designs of approaches or this kind of new knowledge has the potential to help us um, do that work better. You can take the same work, we do the same work, and in doing it in a new way that's better informed by some of this, this science, this emerging knowledge, um, we believe we're getting better outcomes. We are seeing trend line with the, ourselves and our other partners, better outcomes over time. Um, and we believe that we have, we're beginning to have emerging data on it comparatively. So um, why not spend the money better just by doing it smarter, as we say in Boston? <laughs> Good. Uh, anybody else have a thought on that question? Albert, you look like you might have something to say. Yeah, I was, I was hoping uh, Beth would go on a little bit because there's this ice cream truck outside my window. And I was like, are you going to leave? And he left right on cue. Um, you know, you know my, my reaction to that is simply to, um, I mean, I know that uh, when we think about policy, we like to we like to think at scale and think in generalizations. And you know, I think just one of the things that we um, probably underestimate the value of is thinking uh, more in the particulars of these things. And so, similar to you know some of the comments I ended ended on, um, that um, you know a, a an excellent worker in a in a variety of fields, it's it, the standards of excellence look different. And so, um, you know, to get really particular about, hey, if you're in this line of work, this is what you need. And this is what doing well in this job looks like. This is what it means to, um, you know, serve somebody well, to do your job well. And so um, and so I, I know, again, there's this tension here that, that you know, thinking in the policy realm and the kind of social scientific realm, there's this tendency to generalize. But, you know, at the end of the day, if this is something practical, if this is something that's really going to be embodied and 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 um uh practiced by individuals and communities um you know we've got to go down to their vocabulary their rhythms their kind of traditions and customs and and their jargon um to, to help them make sense of it if i can jump in so 
when I think about this, compare it to to what's happened with cognitive skills. And interestingly, uh, what happened with cognitive skills is is about 25 years ago, uh, Brent, one of your colleagues named Charles Murray wrote a book called The Bell Curve. There are a lot of problems with that book. Uh, but he did point out that that the test score measures that we have seem to have big impacts on stuff. And then when other economists and other social scientists went and looked at it more rigorously, that turned out to be true. So it led to this big leap into policymaking uh, through No Child Left Behind at the federal level, which started off at least as, as a very bipartisan partnership between George W. Bush and, and Ted Kennedy. Um, but over time, you know, the trajectory of that stuff was not very encouraging because no one figured out a way to sort of really improve those skills. And by 2015, when it came time to authorize, reauthorize uh, No Child Left Behind in, in a different, in something we now call ESSA, um, you can make it, we didn't make a lot of progress despite all the research and all we invest in that. That's the discouraging. And, 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 and as I've said, non-cognitive is probably harder just because it means so many different things. On the other hand, you know, uh, I mean, Brent, what you said is really true. It's not just the employers who say that. Almost everyone, this is a really nonpartisan thing, right? Any parent, any teacher will tell you that any one of those things you mentioned matters a lot, right? And, and, and of course, you know, I, I think, you know, the emphasis on, 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 on self-regulation maybe appeals a little more to some folks politically and the emphasis on, I don't know, social skills, other things that appeals to others. I think, you know, we can make a case. This stuff matters, even though there's a lot we don't know about. Uh, and, and that, at least for now, investing a lot more in experimentation, experimenting, evaluating, you know, it, again, it will be nonpartisan. Now, investing is just investing dollars is never nonpartisan. Uh, but, but, you know, I would think you could get a lot of support for doing more, and especially at the state level, for doing more of this experimentation and, and evaluation, um, which needs to be done. I want to weigh in also. Uh, you know, I don't see sort of the same pessimism. Maybe I'm uh, talking to different people, Brent, than you are. But, you know, I um, personally, as an economist, we are by nature extremely pessimistic people. But the, the I think in this science. case, yeah. yes, I'm a dismal scientist. Um, but in this case, you know, the glass really is half full. We do, we have examples of, of, you know, of programs, of ways that these skills can be nurtured and taught across the you know age distribution we've got ideas about pre-k we've got ideas about you know k through 12 Beth, i was really inspired by your your work um you know and um you know also for these sort of um you know young adults um you know so certainly we can't say aha we have this one silver bullet but in terms of you know complex human beings and, you know, sort of policies that are going to improve their lives, you know, we're on track on this. And I guess I'd just add that the neuroscience about how about ex executive function skills, for example, executive functioning and self-regulation, the science itself suggests these are skills that can be acquired well into adulthood, unlike other skills that we're often training for, like language and other things that have critical periods that shut down earlier. And so there's optimism there, too, because there's a lot of suggestion that we can continue to work with individuals to develop 
develop these skills over time. So more plasticity um, yeah. for these kinds of things at, at older ages. It's, uh, so that that actually brings me to my next question. We've got a couple questions in the queue, so I want to make sure we get to those. But so this is really for everybody. You are each uh, empowered for a single day to uh, to establish policy about allocation of resources on this issue across the age spectrum. Uh, I would really like to hear from each of you where the, the best return is from your perspective in terms of um, uh, allocating those resources by, you know, children, you know, or, or uh, early childhood, school-aged adult, young adult, adult, um, where, where would you place your bet? Um, and let's see, I am going, and I really want to hear, uh, Diane and Harry duke it out over this, uh, question of, of early childhood interventions. So why don't we start there? Uh, uh, Harry, where, where, King for a day, where are you, where are you placing your bet? Well, uh, as I indicated, I would I would spend a lot more supporting states in experimentation and evaluation uh, in the pre-K through 12 uh, school. Uh, um, I support pre-K expansion. I, I have a lot of questions about I, I put much less weight on studies like Perry and Absidarian. They were tiny programs with a lot of resources, one in 1962 and one in 1974. You know, the world is so different. Even Head Start, you know, it has become, does Head Start work or not? has become a much more complicated question. Uh, maybe it worked for the cohorts in the 70s and 80s better than now. But again, in, uh, but, and yet I would still, I would still like to see pre-K expansion carefully uh, and not a rush to universal. Um, and in and, and, and areas where we really have strong evidence. So I, I keep saying in a few areas like summer youth employment programs for, for teenagers in high school, a really critical age where a lot of kids do sort of drop out and disconnect, especially low income. Let's do it. Let's let's. Pour. So where we have really proven, you know, and, and Beth stuff again, I, I really like Beth stuff. And, and there's going to be an evaluation. MDRC, I know, is evaluating some of the programs Beth has, has focused on. Jim Riccio at, at MDRC would love to see that that stuff is, there's impact, it lasts, and it's cost-effective over time, but we're not quite there yet. So I would invest a lot in experimentation and evaluation for all three groups, but, but where we know, uh, as with summer youth employment and some things like that, even more money into that. And, and again, I, I would say pre-K too, as well, just I, I wouldn't rush quickly to do universal, I would do it in, in a slightly more measured way. Um, sure. And I'll uh, sort of start by saying that I think that the literature on uh, non-cognitive skills in preschool is much stronger than Harry thinks it is. To be sure, many economists were drawn to this by um, Nobel Prize winner Jim Heckman's, you know, uh, very important work on the Perry Preschool Program. But my, my read is different uh, from Harry's. I think that uh, we've learned a lot about non-cognitive skills through um, my study with Raj Chetty and others on the Project Star um, kindergarten teachers work, uh, which I think really points to um, non-cognitive skills as being an important important piece of this. And I would uh, sort of add 
uh, the work that you mentioned uh, by my colleague Caravo Jackson, um, as you know, further pointing to the roles of, of teachers in developing, nurturing, and teaching these types of skills. Um, but furthermore, uh, we have modern evidence on on Head Start. Uh, that I think is also pointing in these these same same directions. So, you know, is there any one sort of perfect smoking gun, you know, piece of evidence? No, but I think that's going to be impossible because, um, especially for young kids, the cognitive and the non cognitive skills are so you know are just really you know tightly woven together. Uh, but what uh, we see could is, you unpack the Head Start? Uh, because I found that very interesting as well. And I, uh, and I think David Deming has done some work in this area and others. But what, what do we know about that? Or what do we think we know uh, about Head Start in relation to non-cognitive skills? Um, yeah. So, you know, there are different eras of, of Head Start. You know, we could, a lot of us, you know, sort of, have studied, you know, the, what happened in the 70s. Um, Dave Deming has pushed us through sort of more sort of the, the 80s and 90s. And then there's emerging work, including the Head Start Impact Study uh, of more recent. Um, I would say that across the board, um, it shows relationships between going to Head Start in sort of the most causal way that we can, that we can possibly come up with. And none of these, you know, are perfect to be sure, but you know, they show that kids are more likely to graduate from high school and even more likely to graduate from high school, even conditional on cognitive returns. Those um, benefits seem to decline across decades, uh, but they're still there. They're still positive. Um, and work that I did with Lauren Bauer when I was at the Hamilton Project, we were able to uh, dive into a, you know a little bit uh, more the 80s and 90s uh, and really dig into the non-cognitive skills, also um, parenting practices of people who had exposure to pre-K. You know, we're seeing you know a lot of the evidence is really lining up with the story. You know, is it you know sort of that smoking gun evidence? No, but you know, when sort of a lot of things start pointing in the same direction, you got to say, you know, unless you got a better, uh, better explanation. <laughs> yeah. No, I, so I'd like to, I, I, I do read that a bit more. I, I, I do take some exception with Diane's uh, summary there. For instance, there was a study in Tennessee that was a complete failure where it, the results faded out almost immediately. Um, the studies of the most recent cohorts in the short term, the effects faded out within a year or two. And, and again, the populations, I mean, there are a lot more options right now besides Head Start. And that's part of the reason that the, 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 the children who are showing up in the program might be a very different slice of the poor than they were in, in the 70s and 80s. Um, and and there's, a, there's a lot of fade out. You see on all these things, uh, you know, whether it survives to but adulthood. But I think your fade out is but, cognitive. And the point that you're making in Tennessee is a cognitive point. Uh, and in I, fact, that's why so many of us think and we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. If, <laughs> well, that's okay. I'm sorry I opened this can of worms. About you did open this can of worms. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. My fault. My bad. Let's. Uh, but I, I, I think it's worthy of a treatment all on its own to do a really thorough review of the research that Deming has done and others have done about these long-term non-cognitive outcomes um, for, for participants in Head Start, because we know that there's fade out on the cognitive side and pretty fast. Uh, but do these people actually look different 
when they become when they're when they're adults and 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 we will uh, we will have another conversation uh, uh, about that. Um, uh, so uh, I wanted to ask Albert a question because um, uh, it's something I think about a lot. You you lean really hard uh, in in your chapter on this notion of tell us, you know that you have to anchor this in a purpose, a mean, an ultimate end. Um, and, and that get, can get kind of dicey, right? I mean, you're talking about metaphysics and about religious beliefs and, uh, and, and so, um, uh, is that really necessary or is it possible that, uh, that, that sort of a shared kind of liberal democratic view of human dignity can provide us with that anchoring um, of of ultimate purpose for as the as one of the reasons that we pursue uh, non cognitive skill development. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that's a fine place to start. Um, uh, then again, you know, I, th I think those kinds of discussions quickly get to well, what do we lump into uh, these ends, and you know, what what's flourishing look like for an individual in a liberal, you know, liberal democratic society. Um, and look, in some ways too, we're kind of just stuck um, at having to land somewhere. And so, um, yeah, I don't have a great answer. Um, I, I, I mean, without opening another can of worms, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do think yeah. um, uh, kind of liberal democracy as, as we've been exercising it, um, you know, we're going to run to some kind of limits. You know, we're seeing some of the unraveling of it, um, you know, whether it's kind of our hyper individualism, um, kind of. Uh, you know, might call it an addiction to consumerism. I mean, there's there's some downsides to this, um, but but you know, on the other hand, I I, I don't want to be completely pessimistic here too, um, because I do think that you know, again, we we do have to think about this in the particulars, and um, you know, just to I mean, just you know, voice some more praise on what Beth's doing. I mean, you know, for her work, it, it doesn't. Like there's less of a concern about like all these other dimensions of what flourishing looks like, um, like her organization and her, uh, you know, as a very focused end. Right. And which is to promote economic mobility for a particular group of people. And and so I think what that underscores is that um, we don't have to have this kind of one size fits all grand institution that fixes everything. Um, uh you know, all the other panelists have mentioned a variety of different programs and that are out there, whether it's you know, pre-K or after school or, um, uh, you know, employment training for, for, for younger adults or I guess older students, if you will, um, that really it's not just up to one institution here. I think uh, we're, we're always coming back to this kind of civil society argument of like building institutions that fit in a variety of places that might have different ends to um, really pursue, I think think um, uh, what still exists, uh, namely an, an overlapping consensus of, of uh, what we think is, is good. So, um, yeah, I don't know that we have to aim that hard, but we do need to ask that question of what, what are these things for? Okay. So, Beth, um, I think we've talked about this before. Uh, we, you know, the beginning of, or in earlier in the conversation, we talked about sort of shifting skills, uh, in the changes in the labor market demand patterns, uh, and how this is 
increasing the value of these skills. Um, you're working with people who are just, they're just trying to get on that first rung, second rung. What, um, how are you, or how, how does Empath sort of grapple with that issue of uh, equipping people for a labor market that is uh, so dynamic and changing so much and knowing that these skills that you're trying to impart um, are all that much more important? Yeah, you know, it's a very it's a very hyperkinetic labor market where we know over time that um, continuous learning is really it's really baked into survival in, in the workforce now, and so this ability to be able to uh, learn and continue to learn and continue to drive yourself forward in a way that is strategic in maintaining you know workforce participation is a very new thing. You know, when I started out in this work all years ago, you'd train somebody to fill out a civil service application to become a bus driver, and they were set. You know, they got it, and it's not the way it is anymore. Um, so for us, it becomes this really critical thing of helping people to be able to um, not just navigate the applications into training programs, finding the training programs they'll be motivated to complete and navigate their their way in and through um, and into the into the workforce, but also to build the skills that will allow them to keep on being able to do that and evolve themselves over time. Time. And, and I think that that's, uh, it, it's absolutely critical to think about these non-cognitive skills and how we incorporate those into the work that we're doing so that we're not just transactional in teaching people to fill out a certain set of forms and get through a particular program, but we're thinking more of human development than human service. And human development is baked into the more standard human service education, healthcare approaches than what we've had in the past. Yeah, it uh, it seems especially relevant right now with the uh, return to work after COVID. Um, Absolutely. Which it is, is. You know, you think about the fact that Indeed now, Indeed.com is now using psychosocial measures for employers to screen for these skills. And you think about what it is to be a single mom who is living in public housing, trying to take care of her kids and trying to reenter the workforce, trying to take those non-cognitive tests as opposed to another while she's watching her kids and, you know, dealing with what she's dealing with at the same time that you may have a not a college grad or a person who's just completed high school sitting at home with mom and dad looking after them, taking those same tests just to get entry into the jobs. And so it's it's a big gap there in terms of, um, you know, what people are bringing to this process of being screened for these skills to get into these jobs. Never mind completing the training programs or other things that they have to do to make their way as well. So, uh, real quickly, um, the quest one of the questions we had online um, really relates to how do we engage employers uh, on this? Uh, who are the ones? Who, some of the people who are complaining the loudest about the absence of non cognitive skills, shortage of non cognitive skills. Uh, how, how do we, what's their role and how do we get, uh, you know, or how do we see the role of employers in this? And I, I open that up to anybody um, who wants to respond. Um, one of the problems, you know, employers are, are going to do and invest in what they believe is in their self-interest and only what they believe is in their self-interest. And one of the reasons that employers don't invest a lot in training 
people who are not professionals or man or managers uh, is that they don't think that it's a good investment. They think that people, you know, if they can't pass a drug test, want to invest in them, they're going to leave over time anyway in three or six months. So, so employers already bring a skepticism to that. Um, I think on the other hand, you know, some of this is based on what economists call market failures and, you know, employers might under understate what they can do to, to help people in this regard. And, and, and of course, what we often find is if you have intermediaries working with employers, but also with the training institutions, uh, that, that those can end up being the most effective approaches. And perhaps in this case, you know, those intermediaries need, need to emphasize this skill set in their training and in their dealing with employers and, and, and maybe even coach employers mm. on, on how to avoid some of the pitfalls, keep, you know, keep their employees from stumbling, you know, along the lines of the things Beth has mentioned or so, so you know, employers will be skeptical. Don't expect them to do social good, but, but with the right coaching, the right assistance, they maybe can play a positive role. Yeah. I mean, social good and uh, self-interest um, sometimes overlap significantly. And that's the topic of um, a couple of the chapters or pops up in a couple of the other chapters um, and Kim's chapter on the, um, the uh, fame program in uh, started in Kentucky and now it's uh, been replicated elsewhere, but it's, they're taking, you know, junior high and high school students into manufacturing facilities and over many, you know, several years, um, sort of gradually introducing them to what it means to work uh, in this facility and uh, or in a manufacturing facility. What's surprising about it or what's surprising to me is that about 30 percent of the time is spent on these non-cognitive skills, teamwork, communication, um, you know, serving customers, serving, you know, working with others. It's, uh, it, it's quite remarkable to me that they would, that, that the level of investment that these manufacturers see as necessary, um, to build a talent pipeline that can sustain their, sustain their operations. So. Okay. Well, we are over time. Uh, my great thanks to each of you um, for uh, spending the last hour and a half um, with us to talk about this issue. This is not the last word. Uh, uh, we're going to be doing more on this, and I, and I hope really beginning the process of thinking about uh, what can be done, uh, particularly in federal policy, to foster more attention um, ar around this issue and to seed some of that experimentation that Harry was talking about. So again, thank you all very much. Uh, we look forward to um, talking to you again soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.